none of us need to be uh, reminded what happened on September 11th. Uh, after the event, there were 1.8 million tons of rubble at Ground Zero, or what the first responders referred to as the pile. <laughs> 1.8 million tons. Less than two weeks later, by September 24th, they had removed 100,000 tons of debris. And if you remember, a lot of that was done by five-gallon buckets. People standing in a line, passing five-gallon buckets down this line to remove debris because they couldn't get in there with heavy equipment because they were still looking for clues. They were still looking for hints, and they were still looking for people. <laughs> so by the work of our hands and not by machines, for the most part, in 13 days, they had removed 100,000 tons of debris. Thousands of people descended upon that site, and by May of 2002, they had finished what they considered the cleanup effort. And then the video that you just saw was the rebuild. If you haven't had a chance to go out to see the site uh, and you're unfamiliar with the video that you just saw in the, in the places where the two towers stood, uh, they built those memorials. They did rebuild another building, but not on the exact same footprint. It's next to it. It's unbelievable. And when you watch a video like that, it elicits a ton of emotion. When you think about September 11th, it elicits a ton of emotion. When you think about the cleanup effort and everything that I just told you, and there's tons of facts that I could get into about the cleanup effort of what happened, we all get, it's like this amazing story. And you're like, that is unbelievable. How did they do that? And, and it just kind of blows your mind how people came together. And if you were, a, you know, <laughs> of age at September 11th, and you can remember September 11th, do you remember what happened to our country after that point? We came together like I have never seen in my lifetime. There, nobody was bickering. Nobody was focusing on our differences. Nobody cared what anybody else thought about what they were doing in their personal lives or, or their politics or any of these other things that we like to be divisive about. Everybody came together and there was one cause. And the reason for that is because of passion. We were all passionate about helping these people whose lives had been lost and helping the families of the loved ones who had lost lives and helping these re first responders and coming together because we saw a need and we wanted to meet that need on a national level. And the only reason, <laughs> then you watch that time-lapse video, that it got done the way that it got done is because of teamwork. There was a lot of people that had a lot to do with that effort. So I would say the two biggest reasons why we look at a story like that and we're amazed at stories like that is because of teamwork and because of passion. If you're, well, you got to meet me a couple minutes ago in an odd way. So if, you've, if you're a visitor of this church, uh, we don't normally cry that much. I apologize. And I'm not the pastor. So you don't have to deal with that every week. But we appreciate you being here as a family and friends of uh, the seniors. And if you're visiting for the first time, uh, there's a pastor that doesn't cry every time he gets up here. I promise he'll come back. Uh, but my name is Brad Gatto. I get to share with you from time to time. Uh, and we've been in this series on this book of Nehemiah. Now, let's be honest. <laughs> How many of us are turning to Nehemiah on a regular basis? 
reading the book of Nehemiah. I'll be the first to admit, not me. Not me. So usually when, when I get asked to fill in for a week, Aaron's actually really diligent. He's always ahead of schedule, and he's, it's months in advance, and so I never really know what's going to be going on. And had he told me months in advance we were going to be speaking on Nehemiah, I probably would have said no, because <laughs> didn't really know a ton about Nehemiah. Uh, but I got to tell you, it's been a ton of fun digging into this book. It's an amazing story of passion, <laughs> somebody's passion, and the teamwork, and what can happen when you put a group of people together that are like-minded and that are passionate. So for the last four weeks uh, that we've been in this book, I think we're going to be in this book for another four or five weeks, and it has a lot to teach us. Today, we're going to look at chapters three and beginning in chapter Four, and we're going to learn about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. I wish I had a time-lapse video like that of the rebuilding of this wall around Jerusalem. Unfortunately, uh, cameras weren't quite HD back in Nehemiah's time, so we don't have a video like we do uh, of the 9-11 rebuild. But before we get into that and this daunting project that, that Nehemiah was getting himself into, uh, at this, <laughs> the risk of, of being redundant, I want to back up a little bit because not everybody's been here for the first three or four weeks. And even if you have, you've probably forgotten a lot of what we've already talked about because we're human and that's just what happens. Uh, so I kind of want to go back and give you a little bit of context. And then we're going to dive into chapters three and four where they actually get to this point of rebuilding the wall. But even before you get to Nehemiah chapter one, you got to understand a little bit about what's going on. So the walls around Jerusalem are gone. They were destroyed. Uh, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, God's people, have been in exile for some time. Okay? Uh, they were defeated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were eventually defeated by the Persians, and they're kind of ruling. Uh, in fact, one of the kings is going to come up in this story, a king of Persia. Uh, and then there's this Jew named Nehemiah. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. <laughs> He's never been to the place where his ancestors come from, where his, his forefathers, if you will, are buried. He was born outside of Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away. And as he grew up, he became what's known as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, whose name happens to be Art of Xerxes. Artaxerxes, because it's one word, not art of Xerxes. Artaxerxes. Cupbearer. He became the cupbearer. Now, some of you are probably wondering, what in the world is a cupbearer? A cupbearer is the guy that basically drinks the wine and eats the food before the king does to make sure that it's not poisonous. <laughs> That's basically your job. To make sure the king doesn't die. Right? Quite the job. Now, the cupbearer, there's a lot you can study on, on cupbearers. They needed to be intelligent. They needed to understand the history. And, and most importantly, because you're by the king's side at all times, you also had to be in a good mood all the time. The, you weren't allowed to be sad or, or, or mad or anything like that in front of the king because they didn't want you bringing the king down. That was not your job. And so you always kind of had to have a face on. And that's important uh, when you read later in the story. The walls of Jerusalem, when we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1, have, have come down, as we talked about, when they were destroyed. But that was 150 years ago before we pick up in this story. So not only were the walls destroyed, but they've been gone for a long time. 
So then we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1. Gives you a little context. It starts by saying, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. <laughs> now, the month of Kislev is roughly November, December time frame. That's important to note. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came to Judah. Now, the reason that they mention where they're at, the citadel of Susa, is because... Uh, you guys know what snowbirds are? <laughs> the people that are smart and don't live here in the winter, right? They, they live somewhere else in the winter. We call them snowbirds. They leave when the snow comes. They go somewhere that's not Minnesota, typically like a Texas, Arizona, Florida kind of thing, right? So get out of the snow. And then the people that live in places like Phoenix, where it's 120 degrees in the summer, they leave Phoenix in the summer and they go up into the mountains because it's too hot. That's exactly what's going on. The The... The ruling party, the king, and, and all of his people uh, in the time of Nehemiah did the exact same thing. In fact, they had three locations that they lived in, depending on the weather. They moved around. They went up into the mountains when the valleys were too hot. When it got better, they went back down into the valleys, and then they had a third location. So they were moving around. And so the book at the beginning is just kind of letting us know where they're at and what's going on. Okay? Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came to Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and, and back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now understand, Basically, Nehemiah sees some people in passing, maybe. I don't know exactly how the story goes. But he's questioning people that have been to Jerusalem or understand things that he doesn't. I don't know if they've physically been there or not. But he's basically saying, hey, what's going on over there in Jerusalem? Again, Nehemiah, being a Jew, never been to Jerusalem. Never been there. And they tell him what's going on. And they told him that it's basically, they use the word disgrace. <laughs> and that the walls were burned and then they're still not rebuilt. Nehemiah, a Jew who's never actually been to Jerusalem, his response is he wept when he heard that. It hurt him, and, and he felt that so much that he wept. And then he prayed. The rest of chapter 1 is his prayer. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read his entire prayer to you this morning, but he prayed. So then we pick back up in the beginning of chapter 2, and the first thing it says in chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, Nisan, I'm, I'm guessing at this stuff just like you guys are. That's March or April. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Remember what I told you about the cupbearer? They were not allowed to be anything other than happy in front of the king, right? That's why this is important. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? That sounds like something I would say to my kids. What's your problem? You're not sick. Get up. You're fine. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. 
I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. So he starts off that way, right? Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, Jerusalem, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. First thing I want to point out there is we're now in March or April. Remember that when the story picks up in chapter 1, we're in like November, December. So now we've fast-forwarded about four months, okay? Remember that when Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, he wept. Also remember that he prayed. And then we see his prayer in Scripture, and we immediately go to chapter 2, and we're like, oh, he immediately got an answer to prayer. (laughs) No, he didn't. (laughs) This is four months later. And I can only imagine, I'm filling in some gaps here. I don't know that this is true or not. But I'm assuming he was praying the entire time. And trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do. Four months go by. He uh, he does the unthinkable. (laughs) He shows his emotion in front of the king. The king calls him out on it. He's like, ugh, shoot. (laughs) Busted. So the first thing he does is praise the king. The second thing he does, did you catch this? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. So real quick, as the king calls him out, he shoots up a real quick prayer to God, like, okay, all right, Lord, I need you on this one. I didn't really, I didn't really, you ever get in a situation where you didn't really mean to talk to somebody about something, but like something came up, you're like, ah, crap, now we're in it. Here it goes. So he throws one up to to God real quick, like, hey, you got to help me here. Because as a cupbearer, this is not my place to come to the king with a request. So he throws up a prayer. If you take anything away from the sermon, yes, you can talk to God impromptu. (laughs) You don't need to get down on your knees. You don't need to close your eyes. You don't need to do anything formal. He will listen to you in the spur of the moment. If it pleases the king, I would like to go to Jerusalem. Later on in the chapter, uh, you'll find out that the king lets him go. He asked him for kind of a timeline and all this kind of stuff, but ultimately the king lets him go. It says later in chapter 2, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the God, the king, granted my request. So this is unheard of for a cupbearer to express emotion, for a cupbearer to ask permission of the king, and then for the king to actually show some grace and go, yeah, sure, go ahead. The people that we (laughs) exiled uh, were the power now. Sure, go ahead and go back to Jerusalem. Help them rebuild their wall. Later on, uh, chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem. So he goes. Which, by the way, where Nehemiah was at, and he goes to Jerusalem. So I always, I always think about this. When you hear about movement in the Old Testament, I can't ever get kind of like the sense of like, okay, well, where are they at and where are they going? Nehemiah had to go 700 miles. Now, for us today, 700 miles is still a lot. Don't get me wrong. That's from here to Louisville, Kentucky. Okay? In a car, I have kids, so it's longer. 14 hours. <laughs> no kid. <laughs> I, was, I was the best road tripper ever. 
My wife went to Iowa. I went to Bethel. We were together the entire time. I never stopped. Every other weekend for four years, 350 miles, I never stopped. I didn't say I didn't have to pee. I'm just telling you I didn't stop. You fill in the gaps. I have two boys. I tried that with them when they were little. They're not as good. They're not as good. Don't do that. 700 miles. Took him three months. Three months. This guy has never been to Jerusalem. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. He hears from some random people that the city's in ruin and it's disgrace. But he knows how God feels about his people. And it brought him to the point of weeping and tears and prayer. And he starts, it's not like he's getting his car and goes to Jerusalem and he's there in four hours. This is a commitment. Three months, 700 miles. If you're, if you're my age, you've played this game called the Oregon Trail. Anybody remember that, the green screen? Yeah, yeah, thank you, whoever. That's, it's a great game. Your whole team never makes it. Somebody always dies along the way because it's a long ways. It's a risk to go 700 miles. Nehemiah's putting his life on the line here. Anything could happen. But there he goes. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I think this is important because he got there, and he knew why he went, right? He was going to help rebuild the walls that had been in ruins for over 150 years. And when he got there, did he come in guns a-blazing and just telling everybody what to do? No. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. He gets to town, keeps his mouth shut, and he assesses. He's trying to figure out, where can I fit in? Where can I lead? How can I lead? Where can I bring this passion that I have and try to build a team? Because obviously, I cannot do this on my own. So how can I lead in a meaningful way? And then it starts to go on to tell us about his assessment later on in chapter 2. And then we pick up in chapter 3. And this is one of those chapters in chapter 3 most people skip. It's kind of like the genealogies in the Old Testament when you get to the genealogies and it's like this person begot this person, they begot this person. That's kind of what chapter 3 is. But it's telling you about the rebuilding of the wall. And it's telling you like who rebuilt what and how it all went. And it's kind of confusing, at least in my estimation. I have a picture of the wall. I don't know if you can throw that up there. Kind of, I actually took this with my phone. It's in, in my Bible. So this is, the, this is the visual that's in my Bible. But we get to chapter 3, and it starts to tell us about what's going on with the wall. And I just want to give you some fun facts, okay, about the rebuilding of this wall. So Nehemiah does his assessment. It starts to talk about the wall. It starts mentioning certain pieces of the wall, certain specific areas to try to give you some context. It mentions like the sheep's gate and how he went to the sheep's gate. And it mentions like the dung gate and all this stuff. And so I was like, oh, man, it's mentioning specific gates. That, you know, there must be some like secret meaning to these gates or something like that. And I start like digging in. And I'm like, okay, the sheep's gate, what does that mean? That's where the sheep went out. So then I went to like the dung gate. I'm like, that has to have a secret meaning. And so I started researching. I was like, nope. It's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> they had gates. They had stuff that had to get out of the city. But it starts mentioning all of these things. 
They start working their way through the wall. They start counterclockwise for whatever reason. There's 40 sections of the wall that are mentioned in the rebuild. From the Sheep's Gate, also all the way to different wells, like the Jackal Well that are mentioned. 16 times in this chapter, the phrase next to is used. So that you can start to get this visual of this is next to this, and this is next to this. And they're trying to kind of help people of the day understand, because <laughs> obviously now 2,000 years later, you and I don't understand what this means, but they would have had a lot more context of, okay, that was next to this, and this is how they're kind of going about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Multiple landmarks are given. They face opposition during this time. I'm not going to get into that today, because otherwise I'm going to steal Tom's thunder next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But a lot of people are working together. And actually, the team that Nehemiah has put together in chapter 3, uh, obviously more people than this, but 38 different individuals are mentioned in chapter 3, and 42 different groups are mentioned. Nehemiah is not one of them. These are all different people. Nehemiah 4.6 says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. Everybody worked together. Nehemiah 3.12, Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. <laughs> if you know anything about this time, women weren't held in the same regard that we hold them today. Uh, yet everybody was involved in this rebuild effort. To the point where this rebuild happened so rapidly. There was problems that they faced along the way, but it happened so rapidly that the people around them, their enemies, were absolutely shocked. It happened in 52 days. The walls of Jerusalem went down and stayed down for a hundred and over 150 years. And then Nehemiah comes to town, rallies the troops, gets everyone working towards the same purpose, the same goal, with passion, and in 52 days, the walls are rebuilt. We're going to talk more about this, but it's worth noting at this point, isn't this how the church is supposed to work? <laughs> the church? The church isn't a building. We know that <laughs> here at Highlands, right? Because we don't have one yet. It's the people. It's you. The church is not a spectator sport, right? The church is not supposed to be you coming here and getting fed by whoever's talking and then going out and doing nothing. Everybody is supposed to be involved, like we see here in Nehemiah. 150 years of nothing. Here comes Nehemiah. He wept. He prayed, and he had passion. You know the definition of passion? A strong and barely controllable emotion. A strong and barely controllable emotion. What things in life do you feel that way about, where you almost can't even control it? You love something so much, your emotions are so strong that you just almost can't even take it. That is what passion is. And then teamwork. Going back to the 9-11 video that we watched and, and the statistics I gave you, 13 days, 100,000 tons 
A lot of it was five-gallon pails. That obviously didn't happen with a couple of people. My wife and I have been trying to move landscaping rock around our house recently. It's been like 172 degrees outside. We've, I swear to you, we've put hours in. If you go out to my house right now, it looks like nothing's been done. Like, it is so depressing. There's like this little corner in my landscaping where there's no rock. And that's it. But there's two of us. Passion is one thing. And it's awesome when you have passion. But passion, like as one person, cannot accomplish what can happen when you rally an entire group of people. Our country rallied in 2001. We got behind a common cause. And because of that, all the statistics. 250 nonprofit organizations sprung up immediately following 9-11. And over $700 million was raised in the weeks following 9-11 for different purposes of helping out the families who had lost a loved one, to help out the first responders, to help out the people of New York, all of the things. You know why? Because we saw the vi- we, we watched it on TV. We saw it with our own eyes. We're like, this is unbelievable. I want to help those people. It takes passion, but it also takes teamwork. You will not be passionate about something that you do not value. You will not be passionate about something that you do not value. Nehemiah valued God's reputation, his glory, and God's people of Jerusalem. You can tell what you value because you're willing to pay a price for it. Right? We all have these situations in life where we justify to our friends, well, the reason I was willing to pay X for this is because of Y. Well, Y is what you value, right? I valued whatever this thing did, so I was willing to pay this price for it. Whether that price was time, that price was money, or whatever it may be, you were willing to pay a price for something because there was something about it that you really valued. Values lead to passion, but they never come cheap. They never come cheap. The problem for most of us with our faith is we don't understand the value. We don't truly understand the value of what this story is and what it means to us. We can all say with our lips that we understand that Our salvation is what gives us eternal life. But do you really understand that? To the point where you value it, and then that value leads to passion, and that passion leads to you living your life in a different way? Nehemiah paid the price. He lived in the lap of luxury. Yes, he was the cupbearer. He could have died at any time, technically, drinking the wine and eating the food before the king. But he still lived in the palace. He left the palace to go 700 miles to go to a city that was in despair. To give up his time, his energy, his effort. And he had no idea what he's getting himself into. He had never even been there before. Can you even imagine showing up to Jerusalem and seeing it in rubble like that and being like, I can't do this. No way. There's no way I can do this. It's not what he did at all. He just found other people to help him. (laughs) Come on, guys. I'm going to rally the troops. His passion led him to that outcome. We all want it. We all want. That's why we come to church. We want to be in relationship with God. We want to be better. We want to have deeper, more meaningful relationships with God. We all want our epitaph to say that our life, we lived our life for Christ. Right? We all dream about all of these things. 
but are you willing to pay the price for it? Are you willing to pay the price for it? Are you passionate enough about your faith to do the things that are going to get you to that point where you have a deeper faith, where it is more meaningful to you, where your walk with God is different? One of the things we can learn from Nehemiah is this teamwork thing. I really don't think that we're meant to live life alone. The best moments of my life where I can say that we take what just happened on stage in these seniors. Brody leads our youth group, obviously. But he can't do that on his own. He's got small group leaders that help him. As a small group leader myself, I will tell you that I wouldn't be, do, I wouldn't be as passionate about it if I didn't have a team with me helping. Everything, everything in my life that I can look back and be like, that was the most amazing thing ever involves other people. Think about when you, these people come back from like short-term mission trips and you've got like 20 people that all went somewhere and they gave up time and money and everything else in a week of their life and they get together with 20 other people and those 20 people put all their time, energy, and resources together and they go pour all that into somebody else. It's teamwork and it's passion. That's where your life is changed. You can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days after 150 years of nothing with teamwork and passion. You can take a hundred tons of rubble with five gallon pails out in 13 days with teamwork and with passion. I want to invite the band back up as we close. But the question I have for everybody is where in the world do you need to pay the price? <laughs> what price do you need to pay and where do you need to pay it? Where do we need to instill some passion into our walk with Christ and in our daily lives. It could be something like your kids. Do you feel passionate about your kids or do you just kind of parent your kids? Your marriage. Is your passion? Do you have passion for your spouse the way that you should or maybe you used to? Your job, your daily time with God? Are you checking the box or do you love it? Do you look forward to it? Do you mourn the days that you don't get to do it? Discipleship, etc. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. My encouragement to you is where can it be done together and not alone? I can't do anything by myself. <laughs> if I want to do something that's big, I have to have other people involved. And I used to believe that that was just like a, a you know, a weakness of mine. That I just wasn't good at doing things on my own. And maybe this is just me protecting my own ego, but I don't think it's me. I just think this is the way that God's built us, that we're meant to do these things together. You want to do something meaningful in your life? You want your life to, to have more passion in your, in your walk with Christ? Get together with other like-minded people and go do something. Get involved in small groups. We have, Brody stands up here. Now, <laughs> it's so easy to look at well, him as a youth pastor. We all know what a youth pastor does. But do you really, do you know that there's somebody that, that has given their life to this idea or concept of ministering to high school kids full time? Get involved with Brody. Become a small group leader with our, with our junior high and our high school. We've got all kinds of kids out there right now who are in Sunday school and we're trying to bring the light of Christ, their salvation, their eternity. We're trying to bring them into that understanding. And we need volunteers for that every day. You want your life to be better? Stop 
living by yourself and trying harder by yourself and in your quiet time alone with God. It's important, but invest in other people. Get around a team of like-minded people and do things together. Give of your time, energy, and effort and do it with other like-minded people. This church, the way we change Delno is not one of us going out one by one and trying to make a difference. It's this body of people going together with a common cause. You want to cause a wave, a ripple effect? You want the TV cameras to come on you and be like, and show a time-lapse video of what we were able to get done? It's going to be when a group of people get together that weep about the things that make Christ weep that want to make a difference. You want your personal life to be better, make your public life better. Nehemiah had it figured out. God wants me to go, I'm going to go. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know anything or anything. I just know I, I'm, I'm told to go. I'm going to get like-minded people around me, and we're going to do it together. 52 days. It took him 52 days to rebuild the wall. 52 days from today is August 4th. Write it down. If you don't have a pen, you have a phone. I know you do. August 4th, put, put a reminder in your calendar on your phone. 52 days from now, my challenge to you is between now and August 4th, do something that's not by yourself, that's with the other like-minded group of people. I don't care if it's getting involved in our Sunday school. I don't care if it's getting involved in our meals ministry. I don't care if it has anything to do with the Highlands and the ministries we have going on here. You want your internal life to change? Start making a difference externally with a team of like-minded people. 52 days, August 4th, that's the day. Father God, we love you so, so much. And I thank you so much for this story of Nehemiah. I thank you for his courage. I would have never done it. There's no way I would have left the position that he was in to go to do what he did uh, and been able to get that done. Um, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of what can happen when somebody just says yes. And then they get around a group of, of people that think like them, uh, that have the same passion, and then together they can feed into each other. God, you built us to be together. You built us to work together, and it's together that we can bring your name forward, Lord. Um, I pray for convictions in all of our lives of where we need more passion, where we need more energy and effort.